or after the sermon. It'll come around. Yeah. And the second page, the front page just has some signups. If you don't really know what David's talking about, um, the second page tells you, answers more of the technical questions. It's a, it's a vacation Bible camp that we're partnering with um, David and Susie in the greenhouse to make it happen. And it's September 17 and 18 or 16, 17? Did I say September? April, April 17, 18, September, and I'm about to preach a sermon, so I don't know, I don't know, we're, we're in a season that the church calls Lent, not, not something related to doing the laundry, but something that, um, it's, an, it's an E, Lent, and um, it's a season during which the church does a, a, a greater degree of introspection, um, it's, it's sort of a season of turning to God, looking inward and turning to God and getting in touch with something that Christians have long valued, which is sort of a godly sorrow, not like a self-hate or a self-reproach or a shame, but just, just sort of a, a sense of the gravity of, of, of kind of the missing the mark that our world has and that our own hearts have and how that, that is a good place to find yourself. It's a good tool in the Christian toolbox because it turns you back to the loving grace of God and your need for that grace. So that's the season of Lent carries a lot of that mood with it as we approach Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter. And for those of you kind of curious, we will have a Good Friday service at 6 p.m. on April 19 this year. We, we often have not had a Good Friday service, but this year we're going to have one. And so that's sort of a treat. It'll be right here, 6 o'clock on Good Friday. Um, and during this season, we are touching on different themes that we're hoping drive us deeper into prayer. So our adult Sunday school at 9.30 in the back, this, this morning we did an Old Testament walkthrough of different passages, sort of a Bible study and discussion around prayer in the Old Testament. Next week we'll be diving into the New Testament, prayer in the New Testament. Um, and so we also have a handout that you probably can see in the back that relates to prayers and praying throughout the week around a certain topic, and our sermons connect with the topic of the week. Today's is shelter. So Dan is our, re our reader, and the Bibles are nearby if you want to follow along. Today's readings are 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 13, Matthew 8, 18 through 20, and Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 13. They can be found on pages 1054, 896, and 169 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Matthew 8, 18 through 20. 
When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 13. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a large land, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. The word of the Lord. All right. I invite you as we, as we look at this passage together, and as we listen for God's voice, I invite you um, to pray with me. Our God of grace, our hearts have longings in them. Whether we feel in touch with those this morning, or whether we feel a dullness and a distracted mood this morning, whether we come with um, one kind of emotion or another, one kind of experience or another, whether we come with some hurt and wounded places in our life that maybe even relate to the church or people that have come at us in your name, or whether we come joyful and thankful because we are aware of gifts, we are aware of blessings, and we're not taking them for granted. Or maybe we come with more questions than answers, or maybe we come with more sadness than happiness. Come from all different places. Maybe we're just confused. And the truth is, as we sit here, we all share um, a condition. And if your story that, that comes to us through Scripture is true, then it leads us to consider that we're all more of a mess than we care to admit. We might not even know the extent of how we've missed the mark or how our ceiling is much lower than we imagine. We might not even realize it, or we might have a painful recent experience of, of that truth. And so the story's increasingly tells us in scripture of the plan and of the really of the narrative of how you've entered in to the mess to the brokenness that those who who are more of a mess than they care to admit would find that in Christ Jesus they are more loved and accepted than they ever imagined wow so often we just hope that that's true. And it is. So we need help believing it and knowing it. Give us what we need so that we might tell the story of grace with our lives and with our, our voices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My kids... Uh, especially my little kids right now. They're nine and six, and they love the library. They love trips to the library. And there's always a big bag 
in our house, a big canvas bag usually that's filled with books from the library. And I mean, it's almost a weekly trip to bring those books back and to get the new ones. And uh, so my kids said to me at bedtime the other day, um, Daddy, Daddy, read this book. This is the book we want for our story for, for bedtime. And so I read this book called Wagon Wheels. It's not? Where's it from? Oh, yeah, it's, it's not. It doesn't have a thing. Where's it from? Okay. So I'm, I'm telling you, I'm off today. Thank you, Mabel. All right, so um, this book from Shailen's mom, um, they brought it to me and said, read this book. So I read this book, and, um, and then I looked at the back, and it says this. It says, uh, behind the story, Wagon Wheels is based on a true story. In 1878, Ed Moldy and his family left Kentucky to go to Kansas. They had heard about the Homestead Act, which promised free land to anyone who was willing to settle the West. The Moldy's were among the thousands of black pioneers who left the South after the Civil War. Many of them, like the Moldy's, settled in Kansas. The town of Nicodemus, which was named for a famous slave, was a black community. And I only began, as I also did a quick Google search, only began to scratch the surface of this history and of the town of Nicodemus, which you know, still exists today and has such a rich history. I was struck with this story um, it's, a, it's a really striking story because what happens is this dad, Ed, I guess is his name, in the story he's just daddy because he has these three sons and he travels with them and they go west and there's pictures of them on a wagon and um, it says that mama died on the way and then there were just the four of us, daddy, Willie, little brother, and me. And he says, come on boys, daddy called, let's put our feet on free dirt. And so as they're going, they make it to Nicodemus and they are welcomed and they are told, hey, no time to build wood houses now. Start digging your dugout. And, you know, they kind of, Ed kind of says, what? But then he realizes, yeah, that's pretty much what you have to do. Before the ground freezes, winter's coming, dig a dugout, dig, dig a dugout and that's their homes with dirt floor, dirt walls, no windows and a roof made of branches and leaves. And then what's, this is what's really striking. Winter comes and everyone's on the verge of starvation because they just, you know, the, in this very small town of these people living in these dugouts, um, their food runs out and it's deep winter. And just when they think there's, and this is actually um, a true story, just when they think they're totally out of hope, these um, the native Osage tribe of Native Americans comes up on horses and of course um, these folks are, are worried and afraid of what's going to happen and this, these um, Native Americans drop off a whole bunch of supplies and food to save their lives. And is that, so, so this is the home of Ed and his three boys but then just as winter is leaving and there's a hint of spring, he tells his boys, he says, okay boys, Here's what's going to happen. I'm loading up the wagon, but you're not coming with me. I'm going to travel on to find a better place to make our home. And when you hear word, and he gives them some instructions about how to live on their own, and they've got like this, you know, this little boy and another boy, you know, they're all kind of younger than adolescents. And yet he leaves them and he heads out on the wagon and they're there looking, watching him go off in this story. 
And then eventually a message comes by Pony Express and it tells the boys, it gives them instructions on what to do. Marvelous little instructions with a map on the letter and it tells them to follow the river and then follow the deer track up. And then and, and it turns out that it was a 150 mile journey that these boys were sent on. This is true. And so these boys head off, and in order to, at night, they light a fire to keep the creatures away, and every once in a while they fire their gun to scare off the, you know, the wolves and so forth. And that's how they make it. Eventually they find their dad, and they find not a hole dug out in the ground, but they find this log cabin that he has built, and a garden with things growing out front. And they have made it to their new home. Fascinating story. On many levels, right? There's a whole bunch of things in there that are like, that's an interesting children's book. <laughs> right? Just very, I mean, where do you even start? One of the things that I find interesting as we look at the topic of this week, which is the topic of shelter, having shelter, not having shelter, is that even in such a fascinating, unusual telling of Amer some American history, with themes that you don't expect to be in American history, historical kinds of stories that books in books that kids read there's still a thread there that is very american in kind of this this part of us that believes in uh, maybe even almost sort of an entitlement to have a house to have a place you know to kind of be able to go and get your place to live and in our city we see people who don't have that who don't have a building or an apartment or a condo or a house, and we see them all over the place. I was just at a new neighbor's house chatting up and getting to know them, and we had a conversation about the, um, you know, the people who don't have homes around us who are walking in and out of, along our streets. And um, she related to how living in Philadelphia and living in L.A. and the similar kinds of themes. And we talked about it. And in the newspaper, there's a lot of, and in the news lately, in our city, there's a lot of talk about how much more money our city can be spending to find ways to house and to help those who don't have homes. And if you find yourself ever living outside or homeless, the Bible is um, a surprisingly refreshing story. The Bible will surprise you because the characters in it, many of the main characters in some of the most important seasons of the church of the story that we're listening to they don't have a roof over their head they don't have a permanent home they're wandering they're off and about without a place to call home think about abraham and sarah when god meets them and calls them away from house and home off to wander for a long long time into a strange land and to be um sort of vagabonds that the locals look at and go, who are these people and should we give them hospitality or not? Should we invite them into our homes or not? And so they move away from their homeland and they become wanderers with a promise of, of a land at some point, but most of the time it seems they don't get to experience that. The Israelites themselves eventually, just a few generations later, uh, Abraham's descendants find themselves uh, to be a people in a strange land in Egypt, which leads eventually to them being enslaved and, and not really having autonomy in a foreign land. 
and being told what to do. Of course, then there's the time where they get released from that. They're drawn out of slavery, and we talk about the Exodus story where they make their exodus out of Egypt. And then, but then what happens? 40 years of wandering, right, through the desert um, from place to place without a house or a roof over their head or a place to call home. Eventually, after a nice long period where they are in this land called the Promised Land, and we, we had a reading this morning, if you noticed, from when they were about to settle into that place, and it talked about them finding, uh, being in homes that they did not build, cities that they did not build, homes filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, and wells that you did not dig, and olive and vineyard groves that you did not plant. So they have this season in this land, and then they're carted off to exile and captivity again with the Assyrians and the Babylonians eventually. Big chunks of the story relate to a people who are essentially without a roof over their head. And really the central figure of the New Testament we know is Jesus and he, his birth happens not in a house but in a barn and in Matthew 8 which we got a glimpse of when we just read that and it's, he says to someone foxes have holes and birds have nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head for three years of Jesus' ministry, he seemed to be traveling along, quite dependent on the hospitality or lack thereof of the people in the towns and villages where they would go. Bless you. And then it just kind of continues when you have the Apostle Paul, and he hints at that in the other reading that we had from 1 Corinthians. He hints at how um, he's had to undergo incredible hardship on the path of taking the gospel to new places. So much of the time of what we know of the Apostle Paul in the, in the book of Acts, he's traveling. And he's, once again, dependent on the hospitality of strangers and people in new cities and places. He's a wanderer. There's no hint, really, that he has a home base with a roof over his head. And yet this is the crucial time of the church in which we learn about, a lot about how we as Christians kind of posture ourselves in the world and what it is that we really have that is so amazing. And it's a time for the Apostle Paul where he says, we were homeless, we were the scum of the earth, we were um, like garbage. So, I think we're inclined to think about praying if our housing situation is not adequate, we think, think about praying intensely to God to provide for us, provide a house, provide a roof over our head, to provide a place of safety. Or maybe, like, maybe you're like me, and you, you actually have never hit a point in your life where you've had to pray that prayer. And so you might you know, posture yourself more as gratitude. Um, like, again, and my daughter can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but um, um, at night we pray a prayer, and with the little ones we pray, and often we'll pray about, because you're sitting there and you're getting tucked in and it's cozy, there's a heater warming the house, there's a roof over your head, there's really, there's locks on the doors, there's not a lot of threats that we're truly worried about. So there is kind of a moment of pause that I always feel about just gratitude, and then we pray, we think about the people that we see every day as we drive around who don't have those things. And so we'll pray 
um, often sort of this litany of things. You know, we pray for those who don't have the, the food they need, the medicine they need, the clothes they need, the house, housing they need, the family they need, the friends they need. Um, and we just kind of list off all of these things. And there's so many things to think about and to say, wow, we have all of those things. But we lift up those in our city and beyond who don't have them. And it's interesting. I don't know if, I don't know how, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if there's a level at which I need to be introspective about my posture, even in those kinds of prayers. Because the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives his disciples when they say, how do we pray? And the closest it gets to this kind of prayer is a prayer, give us our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. And um, so not even so much praying for all of these other things on top of it, just enough to, to physically survive in my body. Giving my daily, and, and just today, not even like we might be inclined, um, Lord, please invest the, please bless this investment that I'm making for my retirement so that I can have food for myself in retirement. It's not even that. It's just, just today. And so I'm, in a way I'm humbled and I'm drawn into a, a different kind of outlook when I think about shelter and the physical blessings of life, when I look at these passages and consider the Bible's bigger story. The Bible, it appears, didn't value and doesn't value home ownership the way that you and I hear everyone around us teaching us to value home ownership. And that, you know, homes, houses, owning a home isn't even, isn't bad at all. It's fantastic. In fact, in the New Testament, the couple of ways that you hear about home ownership are, um, they're fantastic. If you owned a home in the New Testament and you're part of the church, you might sell it. And then the money could be given away to the poor. It was amazing. If you owned a house in the New Testament and you're part of the church, the church would meet in that house all the time. It was great. So I, you sense a little bit of my tone there that I'm grappling with a disconnect maybe from our outlook and of course like the whole thing starts the whole way of of considering our spiritual condition as being in a way homeless and you know the promised land and inheritance and these kinds of things in the Bible function at not really the surface level they predominantly function at a sort of spiritual level level, a deeper level, starting with Adam and Eve when they are evicted from their home. And they become, along with all of these other people and these other stories, many of which I've already referenced, they become a depiction for us of our spiritual reality. Um, they, it becomes a, a story about our alien, our spiritual alienation, our spiritual homelessness that is shared by all. You can't escape your spiritual homelessness by living in the fabulous 40s. Some people, for a period of their time, live outside and without a roof over the he their head. All of us, all the time, are marked by being spiritually adrift in a condition of alienation that runs deep. 
And in fact, I think if you face a daily inability to get your needs met and to not have shelter, you might even be more likely to grasp your spiritual condition. You might have... Um, you might have your eyes and ears more open to seeing and hearing God and being aware of a need to depend and rely on God. You know, um, maybe this is beating a dead horse, but let me put it another way. American mommies and daddies teach their kids well. Be a good little girl. Buy a house someday, then you'll know you're on the right path. And I don't know about you, but do you often imagine that Jesus agrees with the right path idea that is in your head or in our culture? The right path? And well, do, you know, pick your right path. Is it the progressive right path? Is it the conservative right path? The thing is, the more you immerse yourself in the biblical story, it takes, a lot, it takes a life of digging in and immersing yourself around the story of God's grace to realize it becomes more painfully uncomfortable that the values that surround us have to be viciously checked. And in some ways, it's, it, this, this text feels so ancient. Deuteronomy 6 feels so long ago. And so disconnected from us, and yet it is so piercingly relevant still today. You'll go out to flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. There's a reminder over and over that this is not, you're not entitled. These are gifts. These are momentary, small things. You're not entitled to this. You did not earn this. You did not pull up your bootstraps to get to this place. And then when you eat and drink and are satisfied, be careful. <laughs> See, right at that moment, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. I think the irony is the things that we often plead with God to provide are the very things that once they are provided begin blocking and pushing out any sense of what God really has for us. If you want God's joy, if you want God, if you want God's life, if you want Jesus, I think we must be very concerned with how deep some of the messages all around us have settled deeply into your soul. Messages about entitlement, deserving, and comfort. Our American ideals of home can leave little room for us experiencing the home God provides. And so if we're just talking about the overarching story that the Bible tells about spiritual alienation and being evicted from the Garden of Eden. The Bible tells this big, epic human story. And the story is driving and driving and driving, just like so many of you are passionately concerned about finding housing for people in Sacramento who are suffering. The story of God's grace is a passionate push to properly house humanity. 
to properly, it's it, to bring the children of the Father, the Father is bringing them home, wanting them to be in that place where finally they can be properly taken care of and they can thrive without fear, without worry. God is ushering us all home again. And whether you go to the self-help section of the bookstore or whether you go to many churches that give you a religious message, you'll get the same vibe. Clean yourself up, earn your place, pull yourself up to be finally acceptable in the presence of God or in the presence of the culture or whoever is writing the book. And American evangelicalism has often had way too many examples of this. Kind of the predominant American Christian um, movement has way too often deteriorated the gospel message so that many who I talk to just think this is the message that the Christian church has. Clean yourself up to an acceptable degree. Be this, and then you're in. And then you can have your home with God. Maybe it's talked about as heaven. You know, tidy up, clean up, strive, work, and then you'll be able to know that you are at home with God. And it gets the flow, it gets the flow of the gospel message in reverse. It's not get your act together so that you can get housed, if we're talking about the spiritual message here, the spiritual underlying message. It's God saying, let me pick you up, let me show up with a moving truck at your home, bring you to a better place. I've bought you a new house. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you're in a tent or paying rent, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same. The same condition. And God comes to you and says, I've paid in full for you to have a room in my house. You, it's not clean your life up and earn a place, but I give you a place that you might start living as if you belong here. It's the biblical version of housing first strategy. And God's home is wonderful. I like to think that when J.R.R. Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings and when he constructed and thought of the, the realm, the, the place called Rivendell, that he was exercising some of his faith and some of his, you know, because he was a, a Christian, and so I imagine him painting a picture of what it's like to be in a relationship with God when he talks about Rivendell. He says, Elrond's house was perfect. Whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or reading or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all, merely to be there was a cure for weariness. Evil things did not come into the secret valley of Rivendell. Later, he's, he, as he's writing... We, we, re, we read this passage of scripture for, or not scripture, scripture. <laughs> this, man, this passage of this book. That's funny. And we'll close with this. He says, For a while the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten but ceased to have any power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal 
and in every word and song. Let's pray. Our God, may that be a picture, and may we sense that that's a picture of a relationship with you. Our compassion runs deep. Whether we've experienced sleeping outside or whether we've never had to face that, our compassion runs deep. And our longing to be of help and assistance um, could fill this room. And so we do pray that you give us meaningful participation in loving our neighbors. And as we as we saw, even in the call to confession earlier in the service, that you're calling your people to use their houses to, to bring in the poor and the wanderers, that we might find ourselves a part of that reality, but that we may never forget the spiritual underpinnings, the universal spiritual underpinnings of how you have... You have brought an unbelievable um, housing to our lives. You have, you have brought us home. And we are at home with you in a way that's way more important than any of the American dreams and the American lies that we are told about what matters most. Drive your gospel of grace deep in because we have many layers of resistance and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.